Welcome back, Kofkenbong listeners, here with episode 92. Now, Tony, I've had a nice long weekend. I'm not sure if you took the Monday off, but... Four meetings on Monday here. Okay, <laughs> so, right. so, um, I, I yeah. made it a long weekend for myself, but I thought you must have had a little bit of time off, including yesterday, because I've, I've rocked up to work with a few more books to get through on my desk. I didn't read them all over the weekend, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's uh, yes, you have got a few more books uh, to read. I've got a few on the go at the moment, but we'll start to get through. But you, well, you, I'm, I'm doing it just to save you thirty dollars. I'm hey, I'm a fan <laughs> of it. Exactly right. It's saving me money. But you, you've started a new book yourself um, by one of your favourite authors, uh, being Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. And today we, we found some, I guess, 12... Oh, we're going to talk about myths um, and myths of visionary companies. Um, and we're going to debunk a few and discuss a few. Yeah. Um, but it's a great little section of the book and, and we wanted to talk about it today because we believe it's a great topic. It is. It's a magnificent topic. Now, this book was uh, written in 1994, Built to Last. Uh, so it's, uh, he's got more recent books as well, which you've got sitting on your desk yep. uh, to read. Uh, but this this is a it's a magnificent topic because it, it's about visionary uh, companies and we're not talking uh, you know visionary companies that have magnificent ideas uh, because or great products or stuff like that because those things change you know products become outdated especially in this world of technology yep. uh, as we certainly know um, you know even in our industry what were insurance products twenty years ago are no longer today. And the idea of trauma insurance has only been around for 30 odd years. So, yeah. so things like that. But it's it really comes down to what is a visionary company and how it adapts and things like that. And there are a lot of myths about what actually makes a visionary company, which we're going to touch on today. Fantastic. Now, do you want to start by leading this in or do we want yeah, to jump no, straight I'll, into I'll, the myths? I'll start by leading in. Realistically, what he's covered here and we look at it in Australia as well and companies that are magnificent here in, in Australia, but basically they're premier institutions in its industry, so they're actually known as the leader uh, in the industry. Uh, widely admired by, and it doesn't mean they don't have competition, obviously, yeah. uh, but they are definitely the leader for a host of reasons, not necessarily even by size. Um, they're widely admired and knowledgeable business people uh, by knowledgeable business people. Uh, they made an indelible imprint on the world in which we live, uh, had multiple generations of chief executives, been through multiple products or services and life cycles, and for the sake of this book was actually uh, companies that were founded prior to 1950. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the, the history that they've studied actually here is the average age of a company was 104 years. So it's been around a while. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's jump into the 12 myths. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put them to you. And yeah. we're going to sort of discuss through them and, and you know, I guess debunk them a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, 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 you know, the take in the book, it's also our take on this as well. Yeah. So where we see things too. And we've seen it, you know, with all our SME clients and large companies that we look after as well. Yeah. So we'll start with number one. It takes a great idea to start a great company. Now, this, I think, is something that's widely widely talked about um, and everyone's always searching for, I guess, that next great idea. Yeah, it's... Um when you think about it, uh, you would regard Microsoft as a visionary company. Yeah. Uh, been around for a while now, uh, one of the most successful companies in the world on any given day, one of the largest in the world. Uh, we know the story, you know, started by Paul Allen and Bill Gates. Uh, everyone says, well, Bill Gates can drop out of uni, I can. 
Um, but when you actually have a look at that, they actually didn't have uh, a great idea. They just, they just were two guys that knew how to look at software. Uh, and realistically, they didn't have an idea of what to do with it, but they were able to do this coding uh, quicker and better than other people in, who'd been around for quite some time. Remember, back then, computers were, in respect to what we know today, quite archaic. Um, but what they did was they went to a, one of the larger developers in the US of PCs and said, we can actually do this and, you know, actually code and put this program on your computer and we can do this. And they said, well, let's have a look. They gave an example, did it, and that was how Microsoft was actually born. So they didn't say, we're going out there, we've developed this widget and we're going to be the greatest of all time you know, by virtue of developing this widget. Yeah, and uh, you can see um, people can join, join industries and start companies in an idea that's already been created yeah. Um, yeah. and they can transform from there. Yeah, and also too, I mean, realistically, regardless of any of the founding concepts, the visionary companies were actually significantly less likely to have early entrepreneurial success than the comparison companies that were actually done in the book as well. So it's uh, it's that old tortoise and the hare thing, you know. It's um, sometimes you achieve such great success so early on that you become in this comfort zone and you end up dying. Uh, whereas it's this little, you've got to focus, but it's this slow momentum bit by bit by bit by bit. Um, and, you know, as a result, I'll go back to Microsoft as an example, a company that I love. Um, and their success has been amazing and outstanding, but they weren't a trillion dollar business overnight. Yeah. We'll move on to number two. Visionary companies require great and charismatic leaders. Visionary leaders. This is, um, we've spoken about this internally uh, quite a bit about the different levels of leadership from one through to five. Yeah. Uh, realistically, I'd dismiss uh, the first three. So you have charismatic leaders um, and visionary leaders. A, char a charismatic leader is a level four leader, and a level five leader is somebody who's all about the company, not about themselves. And that's the distinction of both. To be a magnificent company, you do not have to have a charismatic leader. Once again, if we take Microsoft example, if you have a look at Bill Gates, Bill Gates lives every single day in paranoia. Uh, he looks at something that can happen and rips it apart and rips it apart and rips it to pieces. This when he was running Microsoft. He just all, always did not accept uh, that they would still remain the largest in the world. So every day, he, he basically woke up paranoid every day that he would lose the company, no matter what its success was and how big it was. And you can't say that he is full of charisma. No. He, he's not going to light up a room. He will light up a room when walking in because everyone says, well, that's Bill Gates. And it's the same with Warren Buffett. Uh, these guys are not charismatic leaders uh, from that respect. So... Now, I'm not saying that a company can't succeed with a charismatic leader, but a company, and we'll touch on it later on, but a company can end up failing if the leader is too much in the limelight and then from and doesn't actually have his other people working. So you find a lot of these magnificent companies, the leaders actually shun the limelight and actually say, well... and. Actually, the best example of this, historical example of this, would be George Westinghouse. Uh, everyone knows Westinghouse if you've got a fridge, uh, any, any electrical appliance. 
Now, his, his great rivalry, of course, was with um, Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison was a bit of a tyrant. And anyone who works for him, including Tesla, Nikola Tesla, who originally worked uh, for Edison as well, uh, basically it was a case of that he, he wanted the limelight. He did everything possible to have the limelight. And any patent uh, that came out of his staff, his name had to appear on it. So there was no credit ever given to his employees who actually came up with the invention, the idea in the first place. Uh, so he was a tyrannical leader in that respect. You have a look at George Westinghouse, his nickname was uh, the Gentle Giant, a big giant of a man. Unbelievable, uh, you know, as a beautiful human being, but he did not want the limelight. And if one of his employees, including, ended up becoming Nikola Tesla, who became a shareholder in Westinghouse, um, if any of his employees um, came up with an idea, their name appeared on that patent. So of all the patents that came out of Westinghouse, only 100 were his idea. He was a brilliant, brilliant engineer and a brilliant man. Um, he saved several thousand lives a year by actually just inventing the air brakes on trains. A hmm. uh, train used to take 3.7 miles, sorry, 3.7 kilometres to come to a stop. They used to have guys on top of each carriage having to do the brakes. And of course, all those guys, and so many of them died. So, but he's a guy who was a visionary leader, but it wasn't about him. Yep. It was about empowering all his people around him. And thus Westinghouse, I mean, GE obviously is too, but Westinghouse is uh, an iconic brand today still. Yeah, moving on to three. Um, and this is a funny one. The most successful companies exist first and foremost to max profits. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? The first thing you learn in business school, and my business clients have heard me preach this to them many, many a times. It's not how much money you make, it's how much you get to keep. And I say that from a paranoid, not as much as Bill Gates, but from a paranoid uh, survival perspective as a business owner. And what I mean by that is really quite simple, is that there's no use saying we make $100 million a year but it's costing you $110 million to do it. Yep. In other words, you're going broke. Uh, you haven't got a business or you can, like some of these unicorn startup companies like WeWorks, um, who are continually having to go back to investors and saying, give us more money, give us more money, give us more money. In other words, they're actually not making any money, but they've got these huge valuations as businesses. Um, so from, from that perspective, uh, you know, it's not about maximising uh, profits. So, and it, it is sort of that business school doctrine that they have, so maximising shareholder wealth or profit maximisation. It's not been actually the driving dominant force or primary objective uh, through history of all these visionary companies. So when you actually have visionary companies, they pursue a cluster of objectives, uh, which making money is only one. Um, so it's actually about usually, um, you know, paradoxically, the visionary companies make more money than their more purely proven uh, comparison companies. And that's actually because they have a purpose beyond making money. There's a purpose for what they're actually doing. Go back to that George Westinghouse example. Uh, it was about giving electricity to the masses. So when you got the AC and DC, uh, so DC was Edison. Uh, Eureka, the light bulb moment, but every house that had electricity had to have its own generator uh, because they only the generators would only work to a maximum of 500 metres. Whereas the um, 
where it went that one step further with Westinghouse was power lines that we see today. Uh, so in other words, given rural communities uh, from one power station and the original power station him and Tesla built was at uh, Niagara Falls, uh, sorry, um, at the Hoover Dam, basically, but it was it was based no, sorry, Niagara Falls, um, and that was about that provided all the power and electricity from there, the power station they built there, uh, to actually power the entire uh, city of New York. So that's an example of um, it wasn't about, and he nearly went broke numerous, numerous, numerous times in actually developing all of these things and he kept pouring his own money back into it. Yeah. Number four, visionary companies share a common subset of correct core values. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's actually no right set uh, of core values for being a visionary company. You know, basically, if we have a look here, you got two companies can have radically different um, ideologies, yet both can actually be visionary. So core values in visionary companies, they don't have to be enlightened or humanistic, uh, you know, which a lot of the words bandied around today, but they actually often are yeah. in some ways. So um, the crucial variable is not actually the contents of a company's ideology, but how deeply it actually believes its ideology and how consistently it lives, breathes, and expresses all that it actually does. So visionary companies do, uh, do not ask what should we value? They ask, what do we actually value deep down uh, to our toes? And when you actually think of even a um, podcast two weeks ago for Rob Tagani, it was one of the questions I asked is that, you know, you started with uh, Boyana and I at the front of my house. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I shared a vision with you. And we said, here's what we actually want to do and here's where we want to grow. And, you know, five years later, uh, we're well on track to doing that as, as the company has actually grown. So if you actually then look at that is we had to work out what are our deep values. But as, you know, we grow over the next, uh, what we got left, uh, 114 months. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, as we grow over that period of time, you know, we'll end up having 300 people working here, 300 working colleagues with us, is it's ensuring that those core values actually are still the belief of the company because there's nothing worse than ringing a large organisation that has the ads that say, here's our core values, here's our core beliefs, and you ring them up and they treat you like crap. Yeah. You know, so in other words, the employees don't get that core value and they're not part of that core value and core belief. Yeah, and it leads on to a few of the other ones in here as well. We so. actually saw that in the Royal Commission with a lot of the banks. Yeah. Uh, here's what we do, here's what we do, and the core belief was driven by profits and money. Yeah. Number five, the only constant is change. Yeah. Well, this one's a difficult one in my opinion. It is, it is. And actually, you tell me why. Well, we live in an ever-evolving world. So, yeah. you know, I feel like, look, I get the values should be staying the same. Yeah. Um, and that can stay, you know, with the company forever. But, you know, do we do we always, do we need to be looking but at isn't change? But isn't that right, though? So a visionary company actually will religiously preserve its core ideology and changing it seldom, if ever. Uh, so... The core values in a visionary company come from that sort of rock-solid foundation of originally of how it was actually founded. Yeah. They don't drift uh, and they don't trend to new fashions of the day. Yeah. Uh, but in, in saying that, though, 
the core values remain intact, say, in, you know, in these cases of what we've been reading about, say, over 100 years as an example, and we haven't been around that long. So they actually stay intact, but the basic purpose of Visionary Company, its actually reason for being, can serve as that guiding beacon for centuries, but it doesn't actually mean that it doesn't change. So the core values remain, but the company might change. Yep. So if these are our core values, and if you think of society 100 years ago compared to today, or even when I started in this industry, 29 years ago compared to today, um, the, the core values of society have changed. Um, you know, once upon a time, you, you know, I've shown you my parents' original mortgage documents. And it says there, Michael Bernard Kofkin, insurance agent, Mary Teresa Kofkin, woman. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we're not talking that long ago. I was born. Yeah. So it's uh, so definitely not long ago, was it? So, but these are things, but the, the core values, so even, for example, last 29 years, I've seen great change. Our core values are still here to serve our clients. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you see that with other really great organisations as well. Technology has changed. Yes, we can service more and rules have changed and regulations have changed and all of that has changed. But our core value is to always ensure our clients are looked after foremost before anything else actually happens. That has never changed. Yep. Number six, and this is a, this is a great one, blue chip companies, play it safe. Yeah. That's why you invest in them, isn't it, Tony? The blue chips? Well, <laughs> do we? <laughs> so it's... Uh, uh, you would more meaning from a you know you, you hear that all the time or oh, what should I do with my money I'll just put in the blue chips yeah so <laughs> Rio Tinto blowing up an Aboriginal heritage site I don't know if that was playing no. safe or or the banks getting into wealth management where it's all about maximizing profit uh, and selling product I don't know if that was actually we know historically now that hasn't been uh, safe um, but Realistically, that's for the really great companies, that's not correct. And if you think about it, uh, every magnificent blue chip company started off as an entrepreneurial company in some way. Yep. Uh, so it wasn't just a case of let's go and do this. So they always had big, hairy, audacious goals, as we call them. Uh, the famous thing that I've got from Jim Collins, but something that we've always I done. I was reading that before, and I was like, ah, oh, now I know where this you is Two things get triggered. Yeah, that's right. So it's just like, God, I've heard that so many times. Yeah, oh, there it is. That's no, where it's come from. It, it's, come, it's come from someone who's far more interesting and intelligent <laughs> than Tony. I'll, I'll agree with it now. So it's... Uh, but you think about it, so they don't. They actually take risks in what they do, but they do it by trying many, many, many things. They don't go out there, though, uh, a, a good, solid blue-chip company will actually, and it's, you've heard this analogy before, it's firing the bullets, not firing the cannonball. So actually going and testing something. So if we're looking at you know, buying another business, we'll spend five or $6,000 doing our due diligence um, on that business, prior to even considering buying it. If that thing gets to the next stage, we then say, okay, what are the opportunities for growth in respect to us and in buying this business and does this business form part of our focus? Yep. And so we might spend, once again, five or $6,000 doing the due diligence on that. And if the answer to that is also yes, then we might go and spend a million dollars on buying it. But we don't go and spend a million dollars first and neither should blue chips because we could be talking a billion dollars you know, with them. So you have to go through that process first. So yes, they have big, hairy, audacious goals. Uh, they wouldn't stay in existence if they didn't. Yeah. 
Number seven, visionary companies are great places to work for everyone. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because that, if you take, for example, um, some of the uh, big Silicon Valley tech companies. So if you uh, think of a visionary company, and let's, let's take three as an example. Uh, let's, take, uh, let's take four. Microsoft, Apple, Tesla. Um, I know a couple of these have moved out of California now for tax purposes. Makes absolute perfect sense. Uh, and Apple. So if you think of them, um, all big, large, visionary companies all have very different core values. So, you know, we, we know of, for example, the employee who said that, openly said that, uh, was it Google, I think, uh, or might have been Facebook, but one of them openly said that, no, they are very definitely uh, left-leaning, and he was sacked for that. So, and I'm not saying whether that's actually right or wrong. What I'm saying is, the company had its core values, uh, and basically you want to work there, you work within the core values. So we know Google, you've got little bikes to ride around the Google campus, and we know that it's, it's, it's all pretty and it's great, and, um, and you can get donuts delivered to your desk and things like that. But you have to be able to work within that core value because as much as they do all those things for you, they still expect 14 hours a day. Yeah, You're going to get paid really well but you have to actually work within those core values. And if your own personal beliefs or core values don't sit within that or visionary company's organisation, no, you're gone. Yeah. You will not last there whatsoever. So You can't look at all these companies and say that no one's ever left. No, exactly right. So, I mean, if we had a you know an advisor working for us whose sole focus was on maximising uh, his own personal gain or hers own personal gain uh, well then well first of all we would have hoped we've identified that before we've hired them but they don't then believe in our core value our core value as you know Jamie and this is your pet uh, because you know it was my big or hairy audacious goal and you had to create it um, but it was basically a case of if we provide this service better than anyone else in our industry and provide such value to our clients, if we do it for 500, uh, well, when you first joined us, 100, but if we do it for 500 or if we now do it for 1,000, um, why can't we do it for 15,000? You know, so that's, that's basically, but we have to be able to, we don't want to have 15,000 clients and not be able to provide that same exceptional value for money service that we provide them today. Yeah, and I think this sort of leads into the next one. So number eight is highly successful companies make their best moves by brilliant and complex planning. And uh, like, I think this one's easy to debunk because sometimes it can be, you know, you've come back with an idea just simply sitting in a PD day yeah. and one presentation, and then that changes the plan that you've done Three weeks Our focus ago. Is, is the same. Correct. Our focus never changes. And, from what and we, we do, and yeah. we do complex planning, like everybody else, and, yep. we, and we build out sort of future goals and things like that. But you know, you need to be able to move, and you need to be able to be agile. So you know, sometimes the best ideas quickly come from another idea. Absolutely. And then it can change. So you know, if you've if you've planned something out for twelve months and a good idea comes past, you can't just stop. No, that's exactly right. And there's no, there's no. I mean. Think of it from a football season. You, not last year, the year before, when when we could play football, uh, you started the year, You had you, there was a lot of stuff going on in the club, uh, you were involved very heavily in that. 
the year started, you were looking forward to having a great year, and by I think ten minutes into the first quarter, bang, the ankle's gone. Was yeah, that broke right? A, so broke an ankle at that point. Broke yes. an ankle, and what was it? Twelve weeks later, before you put on the boots again and had Correct. a kid. Yeah. So. But the team ended up winning the grand final, and the ultimate goal at the start of the season was winning a grand final, but you actually would have assumed that you were going to be playing all 16 games or whatever it was leading up to the finals and then going into the grand final. You didn't assume that something like that was going to happen. If you're so rigid with your strategic plan, when you go and have a pandemic that actually occurs, uh, well, then everything's thrown out the window. That's a strategy planning that you have the like of Sander. Uh, from SJS uh, strategies will come in and actually do so. If, the, the what if, if the worst case scenario was to occur, get out of your comfort zone, what would you do uh, if your strategic plan was so rigid, um, like for example, Kodak? Kodak actually had digital cameras before anyone else, but they said they'll never take off and ignored them. Yep. Uh, so Kodak didn't go dead. Kodak went dead because of their own arrogance. Uh, in a comfort zone, world leader, no need, no need to change, do they? No. So it's um, you know, Motorola with phones. Um, just, just another classic example. So the, these are the things that you have to think about. Yeah. Number nine, companies should hire outside CEOs to stimulate fundamental change. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> so it's um, the, the growth of a company is, if you think about, if, you're, if you've got a successful company and an amazing focus... If you've got a successful company and that amazing focus, uh, if you bring in an outsider who's going to go and shake it up and change it all, is that going to necessarily work? And we've seen it on numerous occasions where it doesn't. And the companies in the study, in, uh, well, in all the studies in Jim Collins' books, uh, they've always had those level five leaders. And a level five leader, what they do is they actually have the next generation. So basically what happens is, when that person steps down, it's not even noticeable because everyone within that organisation has actually been trained and that internal person who goes to that next level who is now the CEO, and we saw that just you know, in the last few years with Macquarie Bank as an example. Yeah. Uh, their CEO wasn't brought from an outside bank. Their CEO had always worked in there uh, internally. And Macquarie's just was a seamless transition and a great success. We've seen it with Microsoft, we've seen it uh, with Apple. Um, so when you actually then look at these companies, they've actually trained within, within. So, and that's, you know, that's our goal within here as well, to actually always grow in a you know, hundred years time. The people that are still working in here, I'll, I'll probably be gone by that stage. <laughs> so it's a, but the people who are working in here, you know, there is that transition all the way through yeah. uh, where you actually do have, it's a team environment. So I could step down, uh, you're, do, you're running all that anyway. Yeah, and people can come in and make from, from below and make fundamental changes. They may have different visions and different goals, but still within those core focuses. Oh, absolutely, and that could, that could be purely based on the technology. Yeah. Um, but they don't necessarily come in and say, and it happened in the 70s with, um, I think it was Southwest Airlines in Texas, great company, who decided, oh, the oil crisis has happened, so let's go out and buy an oil company. Uh, if they just stuck to flying airplanes, they would still be around today. Yeah. Number 10, the most successful companies focus primarily on beating the competition. No, 
absolutely not. Yeah, who cares what others are doing around you? Yeah, it's, you know, there was, there was a saying when I was a kid, I don't know if it was still around when you were a kid, but there was a saying when I was a kid, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Yeah, okay. So basically it was a case of, uh, you know, and, and I don't know whether Darbs or Karma ever said this to you, but it's a case of, oh, well, such and such is always at home, uh, you know, studying hard. You're just out kicking a footy. Yeah, you know, yeah. so, so I didn't get that. I wasn't doing either. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, but I think it's, it's that the competition is actually within themselves. So as an example, you know, we use us as an example. Uh, we don't have any competition out there. No. And that's because we're not competing with anyone. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, I don't care if there's a ranking order in this industry. You know, our, our focus is to be the, provide the premier service to our clients and be a standout where our peers turn around and say, you know, that organisation, Kofkin Bond, are the most amazing organisation in the financial services business. That doesn't mean we have to be as big as Macquarie Bank. Um, or anything like that. We just have to, provide, have to provide what we do and have that exceptional service. So um, realistically, our own competition is ourselves and, and that is our regular meetings of how do we better ourselves? How do we provide a better service to our clients without increasing the fees? You know, and actually still remain profitable. How do we, uh, so you know, how do we innovate this? How do we use technology? What do we have to spend on that technology to be able to provide those services? And it's the same with an athlete. You know, if you take um, Usain Bolt as an example, or Michael Phelps, the swimmer, their focus, they're world record holders. Um, they were unbeatable. But if they ever regarded themselves as unbeatable, they would have been beaten. Their competition was to always better themselves. They were already the best. Yep. But they never rested on their laurels. They always, And that's the same with a lot of athletes and things like that as well. So your only competition is yourself. If you entered the Melbourne Marathon this year, Jamie, which I know you won't, but let's, let's just assume you know something happened and you got motivated and you did. Your, your motivation in um, signing up to the Melbourne Marathon would not be to win. No, you wouldn't. I've seen you run. <laughs> so it's, uh, but you know, it's but at the end, at the same time, your motivation is to finish, and then your motivation might be to finish within a certain time, yep. and then the next one might be your motivation is to beat that time. You know, the next time around. So the, these are all these are all the different factors that you actually have. So it's it's about the greatest companies in the world do not care about what their competitors are doing or where they're ranked or how much money. It's about beating themselves. Yeah. Number eleven, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So realistically, when you look at it, is companies, the visionary companies, the greatest companies, the gold medals companies. Uh, they don't brutalise themselves with the tyranny of all. Uh, there's no, basically, you can either have A or B. You know, it's not uh, saying you can have this bag of chips or this Mars bar, but only one, you know, your choice. So it's a case of they, they basically look at what do we actually do, where is our, if you take an, a, a magnificent company, 3M, you know 3M because of scotch tape and things like that, um, and uh, post-it notes. Yeah. Uh, we've all got post-it notes. So you, you know them, you know, every book's we've all got post-it notes through it and things like that. 3M actually started off as a failed mining company. So it's, it's basically not a case of, you know, if you take, for example, our 
uh, our DARE strategy and our business planning. Financial service is very diversified. What are the core focuses that we have to actually help us achieve our end goal for our clients? And there's so many different you know, things involved in that, being uh, mergers and acquisition, being legal, being estate planning, being uh, accounting, being taxation, being tax returns. Um, now, there's, and then there's uh, funds management, and then there's insurance, and then there's strategy, and then there's all these things that are there. And realistically, at the end of the day, we either, we said, this is our core focus looking after our client. We don't have those in our business, uh, so we will outsource them to people who we regard as the best at doing that within a price range that actually suits our clients as well. So it's not a case of, you know, A or B. It's a case of, now, it's not to say that we won't do some of those things in the future, but it's always a case of we test the water first, test the water first. Is it better to outsource it or is it better to bring it indoors? But we test the water. So there's no such thing as A or B. Yeah. yeah. And finishing off, companies with number 12, companies yeah. become visionary primarily through vision statements. Yeah, there's... Um, I the, hate vision statements. Yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, yeah, you helped me come up with ours. I know. And, you live by it. and, you know, I get them, but I think when it's so long trying to, you know, build your planning and your next stages out of a vision statement, yeah, I can't stand that. Well, I'll tell you a story on vision statements uh, from one of our clients who's the founder of Osterio. And they spent, this is in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and they had a consultant come in and spend some huge amounts of money. And you know Brian very well, so it's... um, and um, they came up and spent, it was an astronomical amount of money. I don't want to quote it because I, I could be, you know, embellishing it a little bit, but it was, I'm pretty sure it was six figures. Yeah. Um, and they came in and the consultant went through and interviewed staff and interviewed management and came up with this uh, vision statements. And then they had a party to celebrate the launch of the vision statements. And apparently Brian walks into the room and they said, oh, what do you think of the new vision statement? He said, well, what is it? Um, and they said, oh, it's there on the wall. And he turned around and he said, there was this little plaque on the wall. And it's just like, I just spent X amount of dollars for that. Yeah. You know, so it's, in other words, you know, where are those core values? So we know when we went through our branding exercise, uh, Richard actually sat down with us from Arco, who's done this with for the Sydney Olympics and has done this for Crown Casino and then the old Gofgan Bond. But he came in here and he interviewed all the staff of what are your core values? What are the core values of this organisation? So it wasn't listening to Tony and Jamie about, you know, what our core... It was getting everyone's involvement of what the actual core values were actually as well. So we all live and breathe our vision statement because our vision statement is our core value. So, yes, going and getting a vision statement done and having it on the wall and things like that, it's a cliche type of thing. But there's also some other ones which actually are iconic. And if you think about them, they don't need a vision statement, uh, but iconic brands that you know and you know what they're about. So, as an example, um, you and the family uh, went to Disneyland for Christmas a couple of years ago. Big dream of your mum to always be there with the family. Uh, and you're all there together. Uh, and, you know, even even at that time, uh, Carl was now a grandma as well. So, yeah. um, so when you look at that, 
why Disneyland? Tell what, What's the first thought in your mind that comes when you think of Disneyland? Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And uh, But if all they did was stick to the Mickey Mouse cartoons, they wouldn't be where they were today, were they? No. So it's, um, But also another thing too, they, their tagline is the happiest place on earth. Wasn't for me. No, no well, <laughs> well, I did enjoy no, it. Listen, it'd be far more enjoyable as a fourteen-year-old or a twelve-year-old than, than what it is as a nearly thirty-year-old. Yeah. But it's um, but it, but it's class. But I did have fun. No, it is class. Those. It's called the happiest place on earth. Yeah. If you think about when that was first developed, wow. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, it was all about joy and happiness and and princesses and the and the prince coming to save and you know so that's that's what it was all about and it's been an amazing organization uh what's nike's slogan just do it and what's that about i actually read the book i should know more (laughs) i haven't got it here on me i'm sorry i've got the book i haven't started reading it but i can tell you what it's about stick on your runners and just do it yeah stop making excuses just do it you know, so it's a, but that could be a slogan for everything, but you know it, don't yeah. you? So, and th- these are the things. So when we, we know, obviously, the brand, the swoosh and everything else. But yeah, so there are lots of myths about visionary companies. But when you actually start doing the research on them all and going back to, you know, some of the greatest of all times and some, some of the tyrannical leaders that are still in existence today and others that have been continually just grown with magnificent leadership um, and it's gone down... 10, 15 generations. I'm not talking family members here. I'm just talking about, you know, internal. So there's a whole range of things that actually make companies great. Tony, thank you very much for today. We'll um, we'll make sure we get this book out in one of Willard's um, emails that go out, the newsletter and, and sort of your recommendation and what you think once you've finished it. Absolutely. Um, but I think it's been a really good podcast and hopefully get shared around. Wonderful. Thank you.